1: Hello, listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. We will get to our story in a moment, but first, I would like to thank all of our fans out there. We cannot do this without you. Please be sure to leave us a positive review and tell a friend about us. The more you share our podcast, the bigger we become. We have surpassed a million downloads, and it's all because of you. And now, it's time to throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new Ohio mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with us, as always, our award-winning journalist who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories with the Akron Beacon Journal, Paula Schleiss.
0: Hi, everybody. Today, we're doing part two of a three-part theme week, Mysteries Out of Our Country's Space Program with Ohio Connections. On Wednesday, we talked about some of the mysterious things our fellow Buckeyes saw while they were sailing through space. Those stories featured John Glenn from New Concord, Neil Armstrong from Wapakoneta, and Michael Collins, a military brat who spent a little part of his childhood in Columbus. Tonight, we have the top-secret mission by a pair of NASA-connected scientists to try and get women into space Back in the 1960s, this plan was so undercover, almost no one else at NASA even knew about it until it erupted into a full-blown congressional controversy. Now, America might not have been ready to accept women in space, but that didn't mean the women weren't qualified. And one of the 13 female aviators who passed the same tests given to John Glenn and other original Mercury astronauts was Jean Hickson, a schoolteacher and World War II pilot from Akron, Ohio. Now, be sure to come back Wednesday for yet more space mysteries in our final part three. But right now, let's get to that story about a group of fearless women who had the right stuff at the wrong time. In the summer of 1961, 37-year-old Akron teacher Jean Hickson arrived alone in Albuquerque, New Mexico She checked into the shabby Bird of Paradise motel with its linoleum floors and nondescript furnishings. She was on summer break from her job at Erie Island Elementary, and that was a good thing because Jean wasn't supposed to tell anyone but her closest confidants what she was up to and why an unexpected phone call caused her to book her sudden flight out west. Over the next several weeks, Hickson and a handful of other female aviators passed the Mercury astronaut tests in a program so secret not even the leadership of NASA nor anyone in Congress had any idea it existed. America was in the midst of the space race. The Soviets took round one when they launched the satellite Sputnik in 1957, breaching the heavens for the first time. Now, they were jockeying for round two, the first to launch a human into space. Scientists debated who would be best suited for the task. Maybe deep-sea divers or Arctic explorers, even acrobats or daredevils. But President Dwight Eisenhower narrowed the list to just one group, military jet test pilots. Eisenhower figured their bravery was proven, and they were already on the government's payroll. Unfortunately, Eisenhower had picked an occupation that women were barred from holding. That was not an obstacle that Dr. Randolph Lovelace and Brigadier General Donald Flickinger were willing to accept. Dr. Lovelace and General Flickinger were responsible for medically screening the astronaut candidates, and quite openly, they put the male candidates through the paces at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton and at the Lovelace Foundation in Albuquerque. In 1959, the first graduating class was announced. John Glenn, Scott Carpenter, Leroy Cooper, Gus Grissom, Wally Schirra. Alan Shepard, and Donald Slayton, the Mercury Seven. What nobody knew was that Lovelace and Flickinger were moving forward with private plans to make a case for sending women into space. They concluded that a female astronaut would be more economical and efficient. For a feat in which every ounce was important, a woman would typically weigh less take up less space, require less oxygen, need less food. But even more importantly, the scientists found women were better suited to space travel in a variety of ways. They handled heat better. They had a greater capacity to withstand mental and physical strain. They were less prone to heart attacks. They were even more resistant to radiation. In the very early days of this testing, Air Force officials at Wright-Patterson learned Flickinger had been putting a woman through the tests, and they reacted with abject horror. So the men agreed the efforts should continue at Lovelace's clinic in Albuquerque, where it would become privately funded and off the books. In the waning days of 1960, Lovelace sent confidential invitations to a handful of female pilots across the country and asked them to come to New Mexico. Not everyone could accept the extraordinary offer. In Bluffton, a village in northwest Ohio, Dorothy Anderson was the only full-time instructor at the flight school where she worked. Her employer said he couldn't spare her for a week, and she had to decline. But that wasn't a problem for Jean Hickson. As a teacher, she'd have the entire summer off. And her principal promised to keep her secret. While Lovelace's lady candidate started arriving in Albuquerque, the Soviets won round two of the space race. In April of 1961, Yuri Gagarin broke through Earth's atmosphere and orbited the globe. Two weeks later, the U.S. launched Alan Shepard in Freedom 7. He became the first American in space. It was late, but made the point that we were not out of the game. Lovelace had invited 25 women to go through the same tests that the Mercury 7 astronauts had passed. Thirteen women made it through. They included altitude record holder Jerry Cobb and aviation instructor Gene Stumbaugh, both of Oklahoma. Identical twins Jan and Marion Dietrich from California and Wally Funk from New Mexico. There were a pair of aviators from Michigan, Bernice Stedman and Jane Hart, and Georgia flight instructor Myrtle Cagle. Sarah Gorlick, a Kansas City engineer, and Forest Service pilot Irene Leverton from Chicago. A pair of Texans, Houston pilot Rhea Hurl, and Air Race competitor Jerry Sloan of Dallas. The 13th and final successful candidate tested was Jean Hickson. Jean wasn't just a schoolteacher and a pilot. She was also a U.S. Air Force Reserves officer and the only World War II veteran in the group. Jean always wanted to fly. She got her pilot's license before her driver's license. When World War II broke out, she joined the Women's Air Force Service Pilots, WASP, where she flew everything in the Army's inventory. She towed targets for live gunnery practice, varied aircraft domestically and overseas, and gave instruction. She even became an engineering test pilot for B-25 bombers. After the war, when the program was disbanded, Jean was appointed a lieutenant colonel in the Air Force Reserves and was attached to Wright-Patterson in Dayton. But during the week, she was in Akron, where she collected a teaching degree at the University of Akron and landed a job in the city school district. She taught at Krauss, Cyberling, and then Erie Island Elementaries, and gave astronomy lessons at Firestone High School's Planetarium. A little side note on that, Firestone later would be the high school that Judith Resnick graduated from, Resnick being one of the astronauts who died aboard the space shuttle Challenger when it exploded in 1986.
1: revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.
0: Jean Hickson never stopped flying. In 1957, she became the second woman to break the sound barrier— when she soared above Lake Erie at 840 miles per hour as a passenger aboard a Starfire F-94C jet. It was a feat that had media dubbing her the supersonic schoolmarm. Jean was unmarried and lived on Kenilworth Drive on the city's west side. And that's where she was when Dr. Lovelace called her in 1961 with his unusual offer. She was thrilled and quite confident she could pass the demanding astronaut tests. In the Albuquerque facility, she had to pedal a bicycle until her pulse rate reached 160, close to the point of unconsciousness. She had ice water injected into her inner ear to observe how fast she could recover from vertigo. She had to swallow three feet of rubber tubing and drink radioactive water and endure nightly barium enemas her fellow candidates considered her to be the best of the crew. They were all feeling pretty confident that once NASA got their test results and Dr. Lovelace revealed his findings, they would be welcomed into the astronaut program. Unfortunately, after a newspaper learned and published that women were being put through the paces, NASA very publicly slammed the door shut with a statement that it had no intention of putting a woman into space. Two days before Jean Hickson was to report to Pensacola, Florida, for the next phase of her training, her trip was canceled. NASA refused to allow the women to use the naval facility there. Some of the women went to Washington to make their case. While they were there, debating their qualifications, John Glenn was sent up in a Mercury spacecraft to become the first American to orbit the Earth. Shortly after Glenn returned, a congressional subcommittee met on the matter of women in the space program. In the first day of testimony, Lovelace's first successful female candidate, Jerry Cobb, made an impassioned plea reminding the committee that women had always been part of exploring new frontiers, from arriving on the Mayflower to helping expand America into the Wild West. She said women more than proved themselves during World War II when they had to fill factories and offices vacated by the men who went off to the front. On the second day of the testimony, John Glenn himself with fellow astronaut Scott Carpenter, were brought in to give their opinions. Glenn started carefully enough, saying the job should go to the most qualified person, regardless of gender, color, or creed. But in the end, he and Carpenter supported NASA's view that female astronauts were simply unnecessary because millions had already been spent training the original Mercury 7. And that was all it took. A third day of scheduled testimony was canceled. And a story in the Chicago Tribune captured the finality of it all, saying, gently but firmly, a couple of American space heroes today drained the fuel from the proposal to train women astronauts. One year after those hearings, the Soviets won round three of the space race, Cosmonaut Valentina Tereshkova became the first woman in space. Here's Valentina on her historic flight in 1963. It's okay. We don't understand what she's saying either, but you can sure hear the joy in her voice. It would take almost two more decades, until 1983, for astronaut Sally Ride to break through America's glass sky. In 2003, a book called The Mercury 13 was published, written by Martha Ackerman. I got to write about that book for the Beacon Journal back then, and for the story, I had the honor of calling and interviewing John Glenn. Glenn's testimony back in 1962 was kind of brutal. He talked about it being a fact of America's social order that women did not do this sort of work, that it was up to the men to fight the wars and fly the airplanes and design and build the aircraft. In 2003, I asked him about that especially in light of the fact that he went on to represent Ohio in Congress for 25 years and accrued a long and impressive record of pushing through progressive policies that helped women. I had to give him points for honesty because he admitted to a rather selfish motivation during that congressional testimony. He said he and his Mercury 7 colleagues were simply driven by the desire to get into space. If 13 women were added to the Mercury 7 list, it reduced their chances of going. And, to be fair, it's hard to argue with that. Jean returned to Akron in the summer of 1961 and took her place once again before her 5th grade class at Erie Island Elementary. In her spare time, she participated in transcontinental races and piloted helicopters, hot air balloons, and hang gliders. She even piloted the Goodyear Blimp, the second woman to earn certification on that craft, behind her fellow Mercury 13 candidate, Jerry Cobb. She also continued to spend her summer and weekends with the Air Force Reserves at Wright-Patterson. She wasn't allowed to go into space, but she accepted an offer to continue experiments, where she was placed on a military transport plane that flew high enough to create a weightless environment. And there, floating in the cargo hold, she conducted research on how low gravity would affect the ability of astronauts to do tasks on a spaceship. When she retired from the reserves in 1982, She was a full colonel. The year after that, she celebrated 30 years with the Akron Public Schools. Friends said Hickson never moped about being denied a chance to become an astronaut. As a World War II flyer, she was used to being turned down for things as a woman in a man's world. And in a 1973 interview with the Akron Beacon Journal, Jean tried to be understanding of the attitudes that had kept her grounded. I felt at the time the American people couldn't understand sending women up on such an expensive program, she said. If a woman goes up and is incinerated on the way down, it would leave more people critical. By the way, one of the Mercury 13 did finally make it into space. Wally Funk from New Mexico joined Amazon founder Jeff Bezos aboard his New Shepard rocket, Just this past July of 2021, the craft traveled at nearly three times the speed of sound, reached 62 miles above Earth's surface, then their capsule returned to Earth using parachutes in a trip that lasted just over 10 minutes. Wally was 82 and set the record for the oldest person to travel in space. Now, if you want to learn more about the women of Mercury 13, you could get that book. You can also find a website called mercury13.com. Check that out. Steve, I know you have always had an interest in space and have watched about every documentary on the topic and read a lot of astronaut bios. Is there anything you would like to add to this story?
1: Yes, I would like to add that Gene Hickson Is part of the International Women's Air and Space Museum that is located in Cleveland, Ohio. If you ever want to take a trip up there, it's located at 1501 North Marginal Road, Suite 165. And while we're talking about women in space, let's go over a couple of these fabulous pilots. Paula has already mentioned that Sally Ride became the first American female in space. And here's a couple of fun facts about Sally Ride. She aspired to be the shortstop of the Dodgers when she was younger. Talk about aiming high there, right? She even told her teacher when she was younger that she would be famous tennis player and a scientist. She even considered going pro in tennis. She once played Billie Jean King. She was also the very first female Capcom. That's ground control. That's the voice you hear talking to the astronauts. And lastly, we have to talk about the very first female shuttle commander, Eileen Collins. She became an astronaut in 1990. Her first mission in 1995 was aboard Discovery. Then she became the very first female shuttle commander in 1999 aboard Shuttle Columbia. Now, I know most of you know what happened in Columbia. It would break apart during landing, killing seven astronauts on February 1st, 2003. What you might not know is they chose Eileen Collins to bring us back into space for the very first time since that incident. Now, someone asked her before NASA's return to space if she had a twinge of fear about the upcoming mission. She responded, I would have to say no. I want to fly again. I am very mentally ready to go fly again. Now, during this flight, she would become the very first astronaut, male or female, to fly the shuttle through a complete 360 degree pitch maneuver. So this was necessary so astronauts aboard the International Space Station could take photographs of the shuttle's underbelly to ensure that there was no threat from debris-related damage to the shuttle upon its re-entry. So I hope you enjoyed these fun little facts of these two fabulous female astronauts, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news, clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com. We are also a proud member of Evergreen, the Evergreen Podcast Network. For more information or to check out other shows, please visit evergreenpodcasts.com. We also have a YouTube page, youtube.com forward slash C forward slash Ohio Mysteries. The Korean War has sadly been known as the Forgotten War, but half a century earlier, the United States was locked in a bloody conflict in Asia that's been all but erased from the history books. Hi, I'm Alex Hasty, the host of Ohio versus the World.